Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago we read this text concerning the name Jesus, and and now we're looking at the same text concerning the name Christ. So Matthew 16, and we'll read verses 13 through 23. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." So far from Matthew 16, let's also turn to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 10. The context for this is Peter was sent to the home of a Gentile, Cornelius. So Acts 10 verse 34 So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. 
Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So far, the word of God. Let's sing together from Psalm 110, stanzas 1. Today in the afternoon, we study the basics, the essentials of the Christian and the Reformed faith as they're summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, which also determines the topic for this Lord's Day's afternoon sermon. The Lord's Day we find ourselves in now is in Lord's Day 12, and that's on page 527 of your books of praise. There the question is, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago we looked at the meaning of the name Jesus, and I made the point there that it's important to understand what that name means, not only because it was a name given by God to indicate the work that Jesus would do, but also because many people who use the name don't understand what it means and have a very different idea than of who Jesus is and, and what he stands for. Jesus' name is a clue to his person and his mission. Well, today we want to look at the name Christ. And let me say from the outset, the name Christ is even more loaded with meaning and significance than the name Jesus, and and therefore it's even more important to understand rightly what this name Christ means and represents. The name Jesus is a clue to who who he is and what he came to do, but but many other people were named Jesus at the time. The research says it was the fourth most common name in, in Israel at the time. But nobody else was named Christ. The name Christ is not just a clue to who Jesus is, it's a specific claim to who he is. And it would have been a very controversial claim, especially in his day. It's loaded with meaning. And so that's why we read again from from Matthew 16, which we read several weeks ago as well. And here we're focusing on the title, Christ. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am. And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now now you notice Peter wasn't just reciting his name. He wasn't just stating the obvious. He was making a claim about who Jesus is. 
Not everyone agreed that Jesus is the Christ. And you notice also Peter says you are the Christ. Not, you are not a Christ. You are the Christ. There's only one Christ. So it's a title that was, again, loaded with meaning. So the question then for this afternoon is, why do we call him that, that name, Christ? What confession are we making when we call him Christ? And let me just say one other reason why this, this discussion matters, which the Catechism also hints at. Rightly understanding the name Christ is not just important for understanding who he is, it's also important for understanding who you are, because you call yourselves Christians. Unless, of course, you're, you're a guest with us, in which case we hope you will call yourself a, a Christian. But most of you already call yourselves Christians. You belong to a Christian church. So you take that name Christ upon yourselves. The name Christ also identifies who you are, and so it's important to understand what that name means. It's loaded with meaning for you as well. So that's our goal for this afternoon, to try and understand why we call him Christ and what significance that has then for our lives today. The first thing we should understand is, is what, what is obvious to many of you. The name Christ is not actually a name at all. It's a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name, as if you know, he was Jesus Christ born to Mary and Joseph Christ. No, his last name, if you want to speak of a last name, would have been Bar-Joseph. That's, that's how they used last names. You, you see Peter, or Jesus calls Peter Simon Bar-Jonah. That, that's his last name. The, the, he's the son of his father. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name, even though we often recite the name as if it's just a last name. It comes from the Greek Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which, as the Catechism indicates, means anointed one. It's a very specific title, a claim to who he is. It refers to a specific individual who they believed was, was coming. So what then does it mean that we call Jesus the anointed one? Well, anointing was, it was a symbolic ritual of pouring oil on a person's head as a way of saying that God has ordained them for a specific office. And, and anointing wasn't for every position. You wouldn't have been anointed a, a carpenter or anointed a, a car mechanic or, I guess, a chariot mechanic in that day. Anointing was reserved for very special positions in the Old Testament. And there's, there's three in particular that it refers to. There's, there's kings. You might think of how in, in 1 Samuel 9, Samuel anointed Saul as, as king, or later he anointed David as king by, by literally pouring oil on his head. The same is true for priests. You think of how Moses in, in Leviticus 8, Moses anointed Aaron as priest. He, he had that same ritual. Prophets, too, although it didn't always happen with prophets, but even this morning we read of how Elijah was to go and anoint Elisha uh, as prophet in his place. So there were these three major offices or roles 
in, in the Old Testament. And, and in a lot of ways, the entire Old Testament revolves around those three offices. If you want to get a good sense of the storyline of, of Israel or the storyline of the Old Testament, follow those three offices. What's going on with the priests? What's happening with the prophets? What's happening with the kings? And that will show you where and how God was working in that time. So there were those three major offices. So why do we call Jesus then the anointed one? What does he have to do with those three offices? Well, the reason we, do, we, we call him that is because all three of the offices, prophets, priests, and kings, that, that show up in the Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks of an ultimate one of each one of those. There's an ultimate prophet who is coming, a great king who is coming, a high priest who is coming. Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to that individual who would come. And the Jews then called him Messiah, anointed one, which in Greek is Christ. Now some texts talk about this figure like he's a prophet. Think of Deuteronomy 18 Verse 15, Moses told the people, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you, from your brothers, and to him you shall listen. So early on, the Jews understood that the Messiah who would come would be a prophet. Other texts talked about him like a priest. Psalm 110, which we, which we sing, verse 4, also recognized that, that the Messiah would be a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And still other texts talk, talked about the Messiah like a king. Isaiah 9, for example, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In fact, it goes on, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this Messiah is prophet, and yet he's also priest, and yet other texts talk about him like a king. And because of texts like these, and, and of course there are many more, there was actually a difference of opinion in Jesus' day over whether there would be one or two or even three Messiahs. Many groups of Jews believe that there were going to be three Messiahs who would come. And so here's the point. When Peter said to Christ, as we read, you are the Christ, and when we make the same, same confession by using that name, we're saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the person that the Old Testament pointed forward to in all three of those roles. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's the king that was long awaited. All three messiahs, so to speak, in one person. Nobody else ever held all three of those offices at the same time. You might say David maybe held two as, as prophet and king, but nobody ever held all three. We confess Christ is all three, and he's the ultimate, the epitome of all three. So take the time then with me to think through this and, and consider why this matters. Because this determines also then what it means for us to call ourselves Christians. Being a Christian is a simultaneous response to all three offices that Christ holds. So first, Jesus is the prophet that the Old Testament 
pointed forward to. And, and what did prophets do? Well, prophets had the, the role of teaching the people about God, about His will for our lives, about the salvation that God would bring. And this is exactly, of course, what Christ came to do. He came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He showed the way of salvation to, to God. You might think of the Sermon on the Mount where Christ explained the law, the, the law that Moses gave, so he's taken on the role of Moses, the second great prophet, and he even elaborated on it and, and said, Moses said this, but I say to you this. And Christ taught many things over the course of his ministry. We know many of them by heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who weep. These are teachings of Christ. He came as, as prophets. And many, many more teachings that he taught are, are just basic to being a Christian, loving your enemies. We all know Christians love their enemies. Why? Because they're doing what Christ, their prophet, taught them to do. And in fact, Christ even finished the Sermon on the Mount with an ultimatum. He said, the one who hears my words and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The one who hears my words and doesn't is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. In other words, everything hinges on how you respond to my words. He, he sets himself up teaching on the mountain as the great prophet upon whom everything uh, depends. And Jesus didn't even just teach about, about God and about how to live before God, but also about the salvation that God would bring. You think of what he said in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's one of the roles the prophets had was to show the salvation that God would bring. And Christ came doing that. He taught his disciples. We saw this in Matthew 16 also. He taught his disciples about why the Messiah had to die why that was the only way of salvation. You might think of him speaking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection as well, doing what prophets do, opening Scripture, teaching them that this is what Scripture said ought, ought to happen. So when we call Jesus Christ, we're making a declaration that Jesus of Nazareth is the great prophet that Moses looked forward to and that the whole of the Old Testament uh, looked forward to, that he came speaking the very words of God, bringing God's message to earth. Which means then that to be a Christian is to be someone who receives him as prophet, who listens and lives by what he taught. Secondly, Jesus is the priest that the, the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. Now, priests had the job of offering sacrifices and also interceding, or you could say praying uh, for the people. So they would stand as mediators between God and, and his people. They would carry out sacrifices on behalf of the people before God, and they would also bring God's word on behalf of God to his people. And, and this, this, this role of acting as a priest, you could almost say is, is the most central of all that the Lord Jesus did. The most central part of, of his mission. If there's anything that you might say, this is the heart of Christ's mission, surely it would be to offer up the greatest sacrifice, to make atonement for sins. That's why in Matthew 1, he's called Jesus who will save us from our sins. And this is what his mission was all about. That's why John the Baptist pointed at him and, and said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, of course, that's a reference to, to the lambs that the priests would put on, on the altars. So this mission of Christ as, as priest is central to who he is as Messiah. You think of how Hebrews also talks about him in detail, all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and everything that happened at the temple, Hebrews says, those were all shadows of the work that Christ the Messiah, the great high priest, would, would accomplish. So then to say Jesus is Christ is not just to say he's our prophet, it's to say he's also our priest, that his sacrifice covers our sins, that he is the one who intercedes or prays before the Father uh, on our behalf. Finally, Scripture spoke of the Messiah as, as the great king. Now, kings had a special calling to rule, to govern over God's people on behalf of God, to defend God's people against enemies or or to lead God's people in in righteousness. They had the, the calling to establish justice among God's people, to work for peace among God's people. And we've been seeing this, of course, in the last many weeks as we've looked through the, the book of Kings. And we've seen every time, almost every chapter, the book of Kings looks forward. It waits for the king who would come, who wouldn't be like the kings that lived then. Even David was a great king, but was not the, the great king, not, not the, the great king who was to come. And we see they're all they're they're weak, they're they're sinful, and sometimes they're outright wicked kings. And so the whole book of Kings looks forward. When is that great king going to come? And this also is very much essential to to Christ's mission. He didn't just come to speak God's word as a prophet, nor just to offer up sacrifices as a priest, but also to reign over our lives. He he ascended on high, and that was an essential part of his mission, to go on high, sit at the Father's right hand, and rule, to build his church and rule over this world. And he is. He's ruling over this earth, just as God promised that the son of David would, would establish his throne forever and over all peoples. Now that reign begins in individual hearts, in your heart, in my heart. He reigns there. But of course, it it only begins there. It also extends into our lives. It extends even further into all of human life and affairs, into your homes, into our communities, and ultimately even into our politics. Christ is king over Canada. That's what we confess when we call him the Christ. Now you might say, well, how was Christ ever anointed in in all of these different roles? Does Scripture ever speak of Christ being anointed in in that way? Well, nowhere does Scripture tell us that Christ was physically anointed with oil on on his head, like like the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament. But did you notice what Peter said in the text that we read from, from Acts 8? He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And with power. You see, that's, that's ultimately what the oil was a symbol of. It was a symbol that pointed to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus was not anointed with the, the shadow, the symbol. He was anointed with the reality itself, the Holy Spirit. 
That's why the Lord Jesus says the same thing of himself in, in uh, Luke 4. He quotes from Isaiah 61 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can see this again also in, in Jesus' baptism when he was when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit literally physically descended upon him in the form of a dove. So the Lord Jesus wasn't anointed with oil. He was anointed with the reality that oil itself pointed forward to. So then, this is what it means when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. It's a title that, as I've said, is, is loaded with meaning and significance. And we shouldn't ever let ourselves forget what that name means. We shouldn't just recite the name as if it were his, his last name. All three of those roles are essential to who Christ is, what he came to do. And, and then also then to be a, a Christian, to take up that name of Christ and apply it to yourself, must then be a simultaneous response to all three of those realities. So let me now drive that home for each one of you. What does it mean for you to be a Christian? It says in Acts 11 verse 26 that it was the Christians in Antioch who were first called Christians. What does that name mean? What did they understand when they were called that, that name? Well, the short answer is it means to be a follower or a disciple of the Christ. You can imagine that's why people called them, them Christians. Oh, those are the followers of the so-called Christ. It was the enemies of the Christians that first gave them that name. And so it would have referred to followers of that person who called himself the Christ. So that's what it means to be a Christian. So let me break this down then and make it practical in each one of those three, three offices. If you confess that Jesus is the Christ... As prophet, that then means that you read his word, that you listen and obey his teaching, that you model your life after your master teacher. If you confess that he is prophet, then you must also be his disciple. That's, that's the way it works. And again, that's what the Lord Jesus himself told us to do when he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. Nobody can claim to be a follower of Christ if they're not also following him as their prophet, disciples of, of that prophet. You think also of 1 John chapter 2, it says, By this we, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So then to be a Christian is to commit your life to the teachings of Jesus Christ, to believe them, to obey them, to live by them. His teaching shows you how to live your life and where to find your hope and how to be reconciled to God. To say that he's your prophet is to say, my way to God is the way that he showed me. That's the, the, the way of, of salvation that Christ shows us is the way of salvation that we as Christians then embrace. 
And of course, when we say that, that we follow his word, that, that word does not only include the words he spoke on earth, but of course, the whole of the Bible, because he himself said, I have not come to abolish the, the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So then, to, to be a Christian is to say, this book, the Bible, is the book where truth can be found. So that's what it means to follow Christ as prophet. To follow Christ as priest means that you trust in his sacrifice as your only hope. It's to say, I have no other priest but this one. There is no hope of me being reconciled to God except by the work that this priest does for me. To, to, to be a Christian then is, is to not presume to offer some other kind of way to God, some other kind of sacrifice. Think of Nadab and Abihu who, who as priests offered up a false fire, a fire that wasn't authorized by God and they were consumed for it. To call Jesus Christ is to say, I don't believe there's any other way to God than through the sacrifice that Christ offers. Since that was central to Christ's mission on earth, it's also central to what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to recognize there's, there's nothing more urgent than our need to be reconciled with God. And there's only one way to do that through Christ whom he has sent. Well, then finally, to be a Christian is to be a disciple or you might say citizen of Christ the King. Jesus said, again, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To be a Christian then means that Christ rules also over your life. It means if, if you want to go one way, if your desires push you one way, to be a Christian is to say, I have a king who will not let me go that way, and so I cannot. He is my king. He rules over my life. And so to be a Christian then means you don't set yourself up as the highest authority in your life. It means you want to go one way, but Christ pushes you another way, and you'll follow and obey him. With the, and you'll do that with, with the same diligence that you would follow or obey a police officer or a judge in, in this country, and indeed with even more diligence. So what this means for us then is that even though we are Canadians, we are citizens of Canada, we are even more at an even higher level citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We call him our king, even though we might have a prime minister who serves under him. And this is what got the early Christians in so much trouble for making that confession that Jesus is the Christ. Because you had to say Caesar is Lord, and that means the, the highest Lord over your life. We confess Christ is Lord, even Lord over Caesar, even Lord over Justin Trudeau, even Lord over the Queen. He is the Lord of our life. So then to be a Christian is, is to be a disciple, a, a follower of, of the Christ in all three of those respects, as prophet, as priest, and as king. Now the Catechism takes that an, an interesting step further, and, and there's a profound biblical truth to what the Catechism is saying. To be a Christian is not just to be a follower of Christ, it's also to share in that same anointing. In other words, to be Christ's, in the plural, ourselves. Scripture teaches that we who believe in Christ are united 
to him, which means that just if, as he was anointed, so we also are anointed. Just like Jesus himself, you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and you carry that office then of prophet, priest, and king. And again, let me make this, very briefly, let me make this practical. What this means then is that if you're a, if you're a follower of Christ, you're also a prophet yourself. You're not just called to listen and obey Jesus' words. You're called to teach those words and and to share that same message that the Lord Jesus taught. And and recognize that prophets weren't just sent to unbelievers. Your role as a prophet is not just out there in the world. Your role as a prophet is primarily to one another. Prophets were sent to God's people. And so you have a a sacred calling from God to speak the words of God and and to share the words of Christ with one another, to be prophets to one another. You have that role in in the church. And you have no no less right and uh, you have no less a right to abdicate that role than than Jonah the prophet might have had the right to, to get on a ship for Tarshish. We have a calling from God to obey his to obey his command to be prophets here within the church. You might think of the the command that Paul gave in in Colossians 3. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, in singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's your sacred calling from God. You might think of the prophet Jeremiah who, who was called to speak God's word to Israel and many people wanted him to, to have a different message, to, to preach something that was perhaps less offensive. And he says in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, he says, If I say I will not mention him or will not speak in his name anymore, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up within my bones and I'm weary with holding that fire in. And I indeed cannot. Well, your heart as a Christian ought to be the same with your calling to speak the word of God also to one another. And then that calling as a prophet is not just within the church, but it is also outside to the world around you. You have a calling to speak as a Christian, to speak in the name of Christ, to to bring Christ's word to the people that God has placed in your lives. Don't let fear keep you from from carrying out that office. It doesn't ultimately matter whether people like you as a prophet. It ultimately matters whether you're faithful in God's service. Now, of course, that task must always be carried out in grace, with love. Scripture says so. Also, Paul says to Timothy, speak the truth in love. And so we shouldn't say, well, my my calling as a prophet justifies me to be a jerk. We're called to be gracious and, and kind. But we are called to carry God's word even to those who might not want to hear it. Well, secondly, you're also anointed to be priests and you're anointed by the holy spirit with that calling and of course there your calling is not to offer up sacrifices in the same way christ did he offered one sacrifice for all time but but your calling is as as paul says in romans 12 to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual act of worship 
So it wasn't, only, it wasn't only guilt offerings that the priests brought before the altar. It was also thank offerings, offerings of thanksgiving. And those offerings are very much something that we as Christians carry on today with our lives. As priests, we offer up sacrifices of living worship. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So our worship service as we sit before God's word and also as we sing afterwards is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's part of our role as priests. So sing with, with enthusiasm. That's part of your calling as a priest to, to sing God's praises. And as priests, we also then have the duty of, of not just bringing sacrifices, but also interceding. That was an important part of the priest's job, to intercede or pray for one another, as well as for the whole church, to bring our prayers to God on behalf of one another. Well, since we, we share in Christ's anointing as priests, we shouldn't be content to, to just let each person among us bring their own concerns to God. And, you know, I'll, I'll pray to God for my business, and you can pray to God for your business. No, the priest had the calling to bring the, the concerns of the whole people before God. And, that, and that's certainly what we all, ought also to be doing. First John 5, verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Or, or, or James 5, verse 16, Confess your sins to one another, one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. That's part of your calling as priests. And then finally, we're also anointed to be kings, which means we're called to reign with Christ in, in the jurisdictions where Christ has, has placed us. For all of us, that includes, at, at the very minimum, our own lives. You rule over your life as king under Christ. God has given you that jurisdiction over your life to establish righteousness, to, to establish peace, to defend justice within your own life. And that obviously means in the first place fighting against the injustice and sin that exists in your own heart. Uh, so to, to, to put it this way, God's law ought to be the law of the land within your own hearts, and there ought to be a death penalty in that land. You ought to be putting sin to death. That's, that's an expression that Paul uses very often. So all of us have that jurisdiction of our own lives. Some of us have a greater jurisdiction as parents over children, or as teachers in a classroom, or as elders over the church. And, or, or even as business leaders over their own businesses, there you are called to uphold God's standards of justice and righteousness and to honor God's name as, as regents or governors in the kingdom of Christ. So the Catechism says it well, as kings we must fight with a good and clean conscience against sin and the devil in this life. And within the church also, we may not simply sit back then when we see sin at work, but we should be humbly, graciously 
correcting it when we see it. And I say humbly, of course, because we can sometimes crusade for our own opinions as if they were the Word of God without actually listening to one another. But where we do see sin at work and recognize it to be sin, we are called to lovingly, graciously correct one another in love, just as kings and queens would correct would correct problems within their kingdom. So in every area of life, we are anointed as kings to, to defend Christ's name, to uphold Christ's righteousness, and work for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So let me then conclude. Why do we call him Christ? Well, we call him that because it's a confession of faith, that he is the Messiah, the one that Scripture pointed ahead to as prophet, as priest, and as king. And so then as Christians, we are also committed to listening to him as prophet and speaking his word, to trusting him as priest, trusting in his sacrifice, as well as offering up our own sacrifices of thanksgiving and worship and to serving him as our king and fighting for him as governors in his kingdom. That is our sacred calling. And if there are any guests in our midst, then I would urge you to also see that Christ is, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ that the scriptures pointed to, and then to become his disciple as well, to follow him as Christ and then to share in his anointing. He is the only way and truth and life. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from hymn 79, stanzas 1 through 5. <clears throat>